our incredible guest today is Andrew Lou Goldham. Andrew, at the age of 19, Andrew signed the Rolling Stones and was their first manager. He's been called a self-proclaimed hustler, which I want to ask you about. Uh, he has led a most extraordinary life and along with Brian Epstein is one of two managers to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the very first time back in 2014. He worked for and with Brian for the Beatles and we'll talk about that. Um, but Andrew, where I'd love to start with you is to talk about a street that I know you spent a lot of time on and that I love in London, part of our business, uh, very thankfully, has enabled me to come to London many, many, many times and spend a lot of time on a street by the name of Old Compton Street. And I'd love to take you back to that particular street and the coffee houses and talk about that time in your life. Well, Old Compton Street, the wonderful thing about Old Compton Street is it doesn't matter what they do to it and the sort of sex changes that the area goes through, depending upon what's loud and what's current. I'm still Old Compton Street. I used to, you know, I was back there uh, at the end of 2019 and it's still the first place I go to and it's still magic. And at the end of the street near Water Street um, was the Two Eyes, um, <clears throat> which uh, obviously it's not there any longer, but it's opposite a place called the Algerian Tea and Coffee House. Um, and I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. The uh, woman at the door, Nora, used to let me in. And down in the basement, the early British acts, like coming out of Skiffle and going into rock, Skiffle being a sort of twin with traditional jazz, and traditional jazz and Skiffle are the only forms of music as this evil rock and roll started to invade or embraced our lives um but the trad jazz um in america you might have there was a hit by somebody called akabilk called strangers on the shore or another top five record was chris barber with petty fleur but trad jazz and skiffle was condoned and rubber stamped by the government as being safe for these about to be unruly teenagers but then along came things like eddie cochran and little richard um, and Gene Vincent. And that was the type of music that was being performed down in this place, The Two Eyes, which I think was 52 or 52 or 59 Old Thompson Street. Run, it's a hoodlum area. So the place was hosted and protected by two wrestlers, Paul Lincoln and Ray somebody. Um, the coffee shops, nah, I didn't have enough money to spend on coffee with a bunch of froth on top of it. Right. I would rather buy a record. So I didn't spend too much money on coffee in that time. Andrew, you mentioned the club on Old Compton off water, but there were so many great clubs down there. And, and can you remember some of those places? The I know the Marquee. I know we're going to talk about the Crawdaddy, but there were so many. Yeah, even if they were around that time. I really had no interest in what those clubs were playing or what was on because before rhythm and blues, so you see if I was like 13, uh, so that would have been like, let me think, 44, 54, eh, 
57-58, right? 1957-1958. And those clubs, if the Marquis or the 100 club, if they, or Ken Collier's, if they, which did exist, I know that, but I had no desire to go into it because you had scruffy old middle-aged, nearly middle-aged men, and they were probably only 35 or 30, who played trad jazz, and they really didn't want to let this new music in. I mean, you, the, the only music of ours from then that got to uh, America was by, was freak music. Like, okay, in the, Chris Barber was very famous jazz band leader they were all sort of university educated um pretending to be at one with uh, sharecroppers and things like that so i had no interest in that i really had all right to cut to the chase i really had no interest in rhythm and blues until the first time that i saw the rolling stones but of course that's much later that is in 1963. right right so before we get there your background is extraordinary. You know, your dad passed as a member of the U.S. Air Force during World War II. And your mom, and he was from Texas. Is that right? Uh, it turned out it was Louisiana, but I didn't know that for many years, which was what made it so hard to get birth records and things like that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So Louisiana. And your mom was a nurse and was of Australian descent? Yes, she was. You know, because when you're young and you don't bother to share your background with people, I could have had so much more to talk about with Mick Jagger. It, it had we known that both or cared that both our mothers came from Australia near the same area. Um, my mother um, arrived in England as Celia Oldham, but she actually was Celia Shapovsky. Um, because in those days, those of the Jewish faith, or, or stomach Jews, um, used to um, want to belong to England. And they would sort of uh, elocute and manicure themselves into being English. So Oldham went over better than Shapovsky. Uh, amazing story. Yeah, that's, you know, so many names in America here. Europeans came through Ellis Island, including my grandfather. And it's about 15, 16 million all in came through Ellis Island to emigrate to America, many from Europe. And, and for so many of them, their names were all changed on this side as well. Yeah. So two extraordinary people who you met pretty early in life, Andrew, who I'd love to get your reflections on, which are John Stephen and Mary Quant as well. Yeah, and Mary Quant. John Stephen, I, I only met once and I failed the audition. We were trying to hustle him. Um, to get an advertising account from him. And uh, we just weren't good enough. It was, um, I, I, well, I say we, it was me and a gentleman called Peter Meaden, who's no longer with us, um, who managed the Who for about five minutes. He was just going faster than all of us. Um, and uh, he never landed and he left the earth quite early. But uh, we were trying to hustle John Stephen to get his account and we, we just weren't good enough. You know, those things happen. But they're in education. Mary Quant, I was good enough. She had two shops and an office um, off Draycott Avenue, between the King's Road and South Kensington. And I had just decided that that was where I wanted to work. And in this these um, days of where, because of the way the world is, you have to sort of cast your net over a lot of places. I just believed on in, you know, picking one door and kicking it down correctly. 
And Mary Kwan, uh, Mary Kwan was a great cutter and a great designer. She was blessed to have a husband who did the hustling. Um, so he sold the stuff. Um, and they also had, were triple blessed by having uh, an old school friend or university friend or something um, from the same manor called Archie McNair, who collected the money, um, which is something that you don't often see. Normally, you know, people who succeed in fashion or so and so, you know, you have to get shafted a few times before you either get it together or you commit suicide like Alexander McQueen. You, you know, in the first round in all our games, sometimes, Matt, is for free. You know, you get shafted and then either you dust yourself off and you get back into the game. But Mary Quant was set up from the very, very beginning. It was a very astute little business. And I kind of learned from them the power of being independent and still being able to play the system. And also, you know, it was a very uh, luxurious life. You know, they, they, it was like being in a movie. When I first turned up at Ivor, Ivor Street at the office, they had a gold, painted gold Renault sports car. You know, and I, you'd only seen those two-door Renault sports cars, excuse me, before in French movies. So this was, uh, I knew where I wanted to be. And when you were there, you know, around, I guess a lot of it around Carnaby Street back then with Mary, how old were you, Andrew? No, no, no Carnaby Street for Mary. She was- Oh, now, she was, oh, okay. She would Get not me. go, she might've allowed her makeup and eyeliner and things like that to be sold in Carnival Street as an accessory. Gotcha. But you wouldn't have caught her there, man. She was Kings Road, Knightsbridge. Okay, so when you were working with Mary on Knightsbridge, how old were you? 16 to 18. 16 to 18. So, Andrew, you're, you didn't have your dad growing up. You had a mom who I'm going to assume was a working mom. Yes, she was. And somewhere... This entrepreneur, this self-proclaimed hustler, if that's a term that has been associated with you many times, I guess to me, it's a compliment. That's how I would take it, certainly. But where did that come from, Andrew? How did that, that part of your persona emerge? Well, you know, if you're, if you're an only child, I mean, not only an only child, but you only have a mother, that you are outside of the system Anyway, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something that is frowned upon by normal people. My mother being a beautiful looking woman, it was more frowned on because the few times that we did visit households where there was, say, a mother and a father and a daughter, the mother spent all the time making sure the father wasn't looking at my mother too much. And, you know, you were outcasts. So if you are outcasts because of the you know oh like you know a fallen woman or whatever you know or especially I mean you didn't know but those who uh, engaged with Americans during the war you know you didn't advertise that your father was American um, because there was just a lot of um, prejudice jealousy um, of the role that uh, not the not so much the role that America played in the war but the attraction that there was to them when they were in England during the Second World War. And at the time, you don't care, man. You know, I mean, um, whatever your life, whatever life you're given is normal. It's not that what I'm looking back for you and talking about is something that I'm complaining about. It was actually just what was. It was just fine. 
Um, right. I'm very glad I didn't have a father because otherwise I wouldn't be the me who I am now. I don't wish that everybody's father gets lost the same way as mine did, but there you are. Right, right, right. No, it's an incredibly, I think, even sort of healthy way to look at it. Uh, God bless. So you're 16, you start working for Mary and along that pathway, you somehow get connected to Brian Epstein. Well, yeah, okay. I worked for Mary Quant. I also had a couple of other jobs. I was working at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in the evenings, uh, delivering the Pakistani food, takeout food from over the road and hanging coats. And then on the weekends, I would go and work in um, another jazz club from midnight to five um, that had the likes of Georgie Fame, it was called the Flamingo on, on Lower Water Street. And after 11 months of doing that, I was totally exhausted and I kind of had my first nervous breakdown and I ran off to France and I lived in France for about nine months and I met a lot of people who were very helpful or useful <laughs> to me um, when I came back um, and saw my first um, marijuana cigarette smoked by Pablo Picasso. Um, you know, mm. And I knew what it was because I'd been sharing a room with this American who had been in the Korean War. And then he's one of those Americans who just had to kind of keep traveling. He just couldn't settle down. And he was like, you know, um, so I sh shared a room with him, which was quite interesting. Um, and, and you're about 18, 19 years old no, at this no, point. I'm, I'm 17. 17, okay. But you know, this, this was also during the era where you weren't gonna run into too much danger unless you went looking for it because there, there wasn't the sense of entitlement that people, you know, if, if somebody has an urge today, they think they're entitled to pursue it. That wasn't really the case at the end of the fifties and the beginning of the sixties, you know, because basically drugs changed everything. The same way right. as other things did later on leading right up to cell phones, you know, um, right. it's all a drug. Um, right. But, you know, for example, say with homosexuals, um, you were safe because if they kind of, you know, they wouldn't go onto your parade because they were still until 1968 scared of going to jail. All right. So you're 17. You're in the south of France. Take us forward from there. Well, I was hustling. I was working in an English tea room. Uh, I was dressing a couple of windows of men's shops based on what I'd learned at Mary Quartz. <laughs> and uh, I was also begging from English tourists on the Croisette, which is the fronts in Cannes film festivals, um, and and in Cannes was better, because right at that time, England, England having supposedly won the war, you were still only allowed to send 50 pounds or take 50 pounds, it's still a lot of money. I mean, let's say, I clarify that, let's say I could get five or seven pounds a week working for Mary Quant or any of the other jobs I had. You could take, when you went on holidays, if you could afford them, 50 pounds out. So back then, the Royal Mail, uh, the, the post was safe. And in those magazines, just used to arrive in your house in the olden days, rolled up. Um, my mother's boyfriend used to put the money, the cash in the uh, newspaper, the magazine, that was being sent to the hotel in the south of France. And then when we got to the hotel, we'd open the magazine and my mother would have the cash. When, when I was there with my mother, but I, anyway, but that's what the English tourists were like. And so I would go up with a hard luck story on the Croisette um, and say that, you know, my, the allowance from my mother had not arrived. 
And if they could lend me a few shillings or whatever they could spare, if they told me the hotel they were in, uh, when my, the allowance arrived from my mother, I would go and pay it back. And that worked until some of them saw me uh, <laughs> applying their money to water skiing lessons. Um, <laughs> and, but they're one of the people, it's instinct, isn't it? It's I, one person who I decided, I don't know why, but I think I'll go and pay this guy back. Uh, turned out, and I didn't know it at the time, but he owned all the record shops in Soho. And so he was a useful ally, Strickland's. He was a useful ally later on, and I was actually in touch with him until he passed. So, you, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. And you've also got, you've got to have an ethical a way. It's better that you treat everybody the same, but we know as you're growing up, we're all immersed in prejudice that, that is passed on to us by our peers, our parents, where we live one, you know, one way or the other. And we seem to spend our, spend our life getting rid of these skins of prejudice. You know, my mother, for example, objected to Indians uh, coming in and taking over the greengrocer shops in Hampstead. But you know, Andy, they stay open an extra half hour. So it is useful. And you mentioned you worked at Ronnie Scott's. Was that where they are now on Frith or were they in another location? It was, well, it was still in Soho, but it was in south of uh, Old Compton Street in Gerard Street, which is now totally Chinatown. Right, right, right. So then it was, so when I came back from the south of France, uh, Mary Quant naturally couldn't. She said, I can't, I can't give you a job back. But she got me a job, a gentleman called Peter Lumley, whose mother had been one of the Queen's uh, ladies-in-waiting. And so because of the same way people like Boris Johnson get elected, he, his job, he was in PR, that he represented all the people who made things for the Queen, like Norman Arnold, who made hats, dresses, Edward Rain, who made the shoes, Nicky Safina. So... He was blessed and he had a model agency. And I had a great job there. I learned a lot. And he was just very good at PR. And then I got another job in a PR company in Mayfair. And at that, by around that time, I knew that I wanted to move into pop music. And so when this particular place in, May, in Hayes Muse in Mayfair, uh, above Curzon Street, used to close at six o'clock, I used to open up and let my clients in through the window. And I started, first of all, I represented the, a, dance, a male American dancer called Pepe, who was living with um, one of the Springfields, which was the group that had Dusty Springfield uh, before mm -hmm. she went solo. Um, then I got a, a British pop star called Mark Winter, who was having hits covering um, American hits by people like Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet and Venus in mm -hmm. Blue Jeans and Go Away to the Girl and things like that. Then I got a singer called Kenny Lynch, who was a, um, a black singer, who um, was one of the first people to cover a Beatles. Um, so it was given a song by the Beatles, a song called Misery. And then I was doing Americans, like tours with Chris Montez, Sam Cooke and Little Richard. Then I was very blessed that in the first three weeks of uh, January of 1963, um, that I landed, first of all, Bob Dylan as a client, uh, a very unknown Bob Dylan. You only had the one album with those wonderful sleeve notes by Nat Hentoff. And he was providing the background music to a BBC Two, which was the serious end of BBC Two. Like, oh, dramatic plays, you know, and um, uh, beat generation writers. I think it was called The House on Carroll Street. It might have been Jack London. Um, I didn't care, <laughs> you know. Um, and 
I went and, you know, to the Cumberland Hotel and I knocked on the hotel door, man, because, you know, um, that was the only way you could, that's how you got gigs. And inside the room uh, was Bob Dylan and Albert Grossman. Now I got, I think I got five pounds from them for, yeah, for working for the week or 10 days or something like that. I couldn't get him much press um, because nobody knew who he was. I could only get him in the more jazz influenced uh, musical paper called The Melody Maker. Um, but those 20 minutes kind of changed my life because in those 20 minutes, where later I went, you know, was one of the things that really got me that they've been smoking pot and I was inhaling, you know, I mean, what, you know, because I, I was not um, doing any drugs or drinking at that time, but there was a magic in the air and that magic, I mean, pot or no pot, um, was Albert Grossman, the relationship Albert Grossman and Bob Dylan had. And, you know, it, with uh, Craig, who put this thing together for us, you know, we spent time a few years ago going to Albert Grossman's grave in Woodstock because he was such a tremendous influence on my life, a much maligned man. But, you know, in terms of, oh, you know, you're going to get a lot of musicians, oh, he's a crook, he did this, and Todd Rundgren keeps bleating on about him, on and on and on. But, and I watched, I listened to Todd Rundgren talking about him recently, and what they forget is that Albert Grossman was older and he was old school. And there were just certain rules in the music business of how things got done. Um, and it went on through the Beatles. I broke the rules somewhat with the Rolling Stones, but we'll come to that because I always believe in making deals with people that nobody ever has to change in that if you make a deal for this percentage or that percentage or so-and-so, once, if you're lucky enough that whomever you're working with, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your field, once you become successful with that particular model, people are looking to break it up. But if you made a deal that can't be bettered and can go on forever, um, you know, the, people can't come and say, oh, he's screwing you, right? But Albert was old school with the publishers and what people took um, for doing things. But, but what I got from Albert Grossman and Bob Dylan, and you'll notice the order I say the names in, is that I went, whatever these people have got, I want some of it. I want to be whatever this game is. I mean, I had no desire before that to be a manager. And I wasn't even intending to pursue that desire. At the during those first three magical weeks of January of 1963, representing the artists that I mentioned earlier, Mark Winter, with these sort of teeny bop hits with quiffs and little crucifixes around their neck. Um, we were doing, he was doing a show called Thank You Lucky Stars, and on it doing their second single with the Beatles doing uh, Please Please Me. And that was like, looking at the first time in England, if you looked at their aura, that it was like watching a French new wave movie or a German dark movie. And because they were heavily influenced by Hamburg and, and Astrid Kirshner and Klaus Bormann and, and Stuart Sutcliffe and people like that in terms of their look, because um, looks counted incredibly. You know, you, were, you got impressed, wow. You know, how does somebody put that together? Anyway, I walked out of that job, I mean, excuse me, out of that television show with the Beatles as clients, mainly because they were all still based in Liverpool and I was doing the London streets and people 
they could, the Beatles, I mean, I know things would rapidly change in a concertina minutiae, you know, rapid time it would change. Like four months later, they were about to take over the world. And by February, 1964, with uh, the Ed Sullivan show in America, it changed the world. But during that period of time, they were still climbing to the top and they needed representing in London because they had nobody down there. And you basically, you didn't make phone calls from Liverpool to London unless somebody had died, you know. Right, right. So I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time in Liverpool. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful, magical place. What got you there? Oh, I went to see, uh, I've gone to uh, football, to to Anfield. Uh, And uh, with my uh, good buddy of mine, Chris Forrester, and we had a wonderful weekend. We saw, in fact, we went and saw some music there. We saw the specials. Okay. And that was an awful lot of fun. So the Quarrymen, John Lennon's band that preceded the Beatles were a skiffle group. That's right. I think a lot of Americans, we don't really know much about skiffle other than it came before rock and roll. But could you tell us about, you know, how important and influential skiffle was and how it really played such a seminal role in the birth of rock and roll in the UK? Sweet 16, go to church just to see the boys laugh screams and giggles at every little noise. Turns her face a little, then turns her head a while. But everybody knows she's only putting on the style. Yeah, putting on the agony, putting on the style. Well, you did in America, but you didn't know that it was skippable. I mean, when I was talking about these freak hits that um, in, in, in America prior to the Beatles earlier, I was referring mainly to a guy called Lonnie Donegan, who had huge hits in 59 and 60, even in America, they're really silly records, um, because he was a part of the Chris Barber jazz band. And he had records like Rock Island Line, Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight? and Actually, he wasn't even getting a royalty, man, because he was a member of Chris Barber's band, and it was the clever Chris Barber who sold the record to Pi, and they they had the record came out in America. So there were, you know, three or four hits, and Chaz, Johnny Duncan, Last Train to San Fernando. I mean, I don't know what an Irish laborer knows about the Last Train to San Fernando, but it was a hit. I mean, I'm not, no, wait, Johnny Duncan was an American who came to England and passed himself off as English. So you had it. But Skiffle was like a working class. Okay, the base was a tea chest. And then you would take the wooden pole end of a broom, you know, a brush, you know, thing that you clean the floors with. (laughs) Um, And that would be sat atop of the tea chest. String would be tied to the top of the wooden pipe. And that would basically be tied to the tea chest. And that, as you applied the pressure one way or the other, left and right, north, south, east, west, would give you the notes. And you had a a poor man's, a working class man's version of a double bass, because a double bass was beyond the money of most souls at that time in London. So Lonnie Donegan um, was huge. And Chas McDevitt, freight train, freight train. there, There was a lot of it. But that was the type of music, the BBC, you know, our sort of um, government monopoly at the time, um, 
thought it would be safer pass oh you know passing on to youth than letting this rock and roll from these these evil people like little richard you know come you know come in and take over the youth and so you pick up the beatles and you're now in the beginning of 1963 yeah that's that's still where we are yeah and somewhere a friend of yours in april of 63 whispers in your ear that you should go to Richmond to the Crawdaddy Club and see a band called the Rolling Stones. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, he's a very good friend. He was a journalist called Peter Jones who worked for the Record Mirror. And when he told me um, about this band that a young writer on his newspaper called Norman Jopling was, was going to be allowed to write about because in, in the magazine basically was meant to write about people who had records out, hence it was called the record mirror and he said you know Andrew this this band could be I mean we we've let Norman persuade us that they're they're good enough that we're going to let him write an article about them from these appearances down at the Crawdaddy Club and I really didn't want to go man, you know because um, Sunday was the day that um, my mother cooked lunch Sunday lunch uh, she um, did the laundry ironed my shirts which was very important um, and there was we had a show on in the night called Sunday night at the London Palladium, which was basically our British equivalent of um, the Ed Sullivan show, which basically the whole nation just sat down and watched this show like the way uh, America did with the Ed Sullivan or Jack Power or whatever. But then Jack Power was a talk show. Um, but anyway, Steve Allen, the one, the other one that Elvis appeared on. Yeah, before. that's that's that was the early Tonight Show. Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. Yep. So, yep. Um, but then my girlfriend at the time told me, oh, no, Andrew, you can, I, I didn't want to go because it's a long way on a Sunday now, you know, right? Um, and April, the weather's not that good. But she told me I could go by overland train to Richmond. So I really had no excuses. Also, the other reason was, well, how could I walk back into the pub where I used to hustle this guy on Tuesday? And he said, did you see the band? And I went, no, you know, it would have been just rude. Um, and you and you were living where in Hampstead at the time? I was living in Hampstead, yeah. So I didn't have okay. to come into the middle of town. I could go on an overland train across the whole from northwest where I was to southwest where Richmond was without too much trouble, <laughs> you know. So I went. I got out of the train on Sunday, late Sunday afternoon, and I came out. I'd never been to Richmond, man, because you see, back in those days, you really didn't leave the manor that you were born in that much. I mean. I, you went, you had maybe had one place in the middle of town like Soho that you wanted to go to, but you didn't go, um, you know, as you were chasing a girl or something. You didn't go from London to Richmond or London to Highgate or, excuse me, Hampstead to Richmond, Hampstead to, you know, you stayed in your own area. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I got there and I walked down this towpath side of the railway tracks to get to the club. And I passed this couple who, Manners being everything, we're having a fight and stop fighting when, as I walk past. And there was this wonderful silence that, as you know, I walked past this more than reasonably attractive couple. Um, I realized later when I was in the club that the male part of the um, attractive couple was Mick Jagger, um, and the female part was Chrissy Shrimpton. Um, and uh, they were on their first date, first fight, <laughs> you know, or argument. It wasn't a fight, it wasn't Joe Pesky. <laughs> And uh, then I saw, I think it was April the 28th, yeah. And so I saw the Rolling Stones and 
because I had no opinion or experience with rhythm and blues, apart from records by Benny King and the Drifters and Lieber and Stoller records and early Motown records and things like that. I mean, I wasn't, I'd had no experience of chess records and Muddy Waters or, you know, I knew Chuck Berry was good, but so what, you know? Uh, and this wave called the Rolling Stones, who were six people at that time, just completely um, took me over. And I knew that all of the preparation, whether it was standing next to Pablo Picasso, going, wow, man, here's a guy smoking a joint. And what is he getting high on? Looking at one of his own paintings in the window, it's just next door to the Hotel Majestic, yeah, the Majestic in Cannes, right? And or the early experiences of seeing acts like Eddie Cochran or, or the, the great film that changed all of our lives. When I say all, I mean, whether it's people like Paul McCartney, John Lennon, when this film from 1956, 1957, called The Girl Can't Help It with Jane Mansfield, that had these incredible rock and roll scenes in it with Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, and people like that. Because we weren't really allowed to watch this stuff. They were still trying to ram the government um, skiffle and trad jazz, you know, as being, okay, guys, the weekend's here, and here's some good music, you know, and all that, right? Um, but the ports of England were very important because sailors would bring back albums, vinyl albums, that's how Mick and Keith and people would get. There was one store in, off Charing Cross Road called Dobell's that had, where I took Bob Dylan, um, that had jazz and folk records. But outside of that, man, if you went to your regular, you know, HMV or so-and-so, it was just pop, right? You know. So um, what I'm saying is I was a complete virgin. I, I, you know, I didn't, when they did, the Rolling Stones did a Muddy Waters song, I wasn't going, oh, that could have been better done by Muddy. I didn't know who Muddy Waters was. Um, right. And then I knew what all this preparation was, Mary Quant, which really gave me an edge because, you know, I'd learned how to, how fashion was promoted and I was set up and I was ready to manage with another gentleman. I should be fair in case any of his children are still living. I, I did it with another gentleman, with a, no, another gentleman is implying that I'm a gentleman, which I will not. <laughs> um, but um, Eric Easton, who was an B agent, Andrew, don't use the phone too much, it's expensive. And because he was an agent, uh, the Rolling Stones weren't stupid. They knew that I could talk and, and get them attention and things like that. But I wasn't qualified to get them work. So I had a partner called Eric Easton who did the, got acted as an agent and got them work. And uh, then also based on the fact that I had severe knowledge of producers like Bob Crew and Phil Spector, and I, I knew what an independent deal was, um, it was being done from England on occasion, um, but my main influences were American. And so I knew that um, I should make the records independently and lease them to the record company, as opposed to having the artists signed to the record company. Um, and then we made the first record come on because I had told the Rolling Stones, all right, I'll meet you in this pub where they rehearse, the Weatherby Arms somewhere next week and play me the five songs that you think are the most commercial out of what you do. And we will pick three and we will record them. And so we went to the original 
Olympic Studios, which uh, I say the original, because that was near Marble Arch, whereas the Olympic Studios that became famous were down in Richmond and uh, over the bridge. And um, we recorded these three things. They gave us a young, uh, not amateur, but on his way up engineer, because you, know, you weren't taken seriously with this music. They thought we would all go the way of Davy Crockett hats and hula hoops and disappear, and it would go back to decent music. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking now because the, when I made this first record with the Rolling Stones, the Beatles were already threatening everybody. You know, this thing had come along, um, you know, by, okay, when was I making that record? May of 1963. So the Beatles were already, you know, since I'd worked for them in January, February, and March, they were, all, they were now it, totally it, you know. Um, and uh, when I made the record, I didn't know what I was doing, which really helped. Um, and it was on four tracks, meaning four channels, and they had to be mixed together at the end into one. Um, and when it came to the end of the session, I said to the engineer, I said, that's great, man, okay. And he said, well, what about mixing it? And I looked at him, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, and he explained it to me. And uh, I sort of figured, you know, well, if I wasn't there, why should I pay for it? Um, and I said, well, you do it, and I'll come back and collect it in the morning. Um, that record went, come on, it was a Chuck Berry B-side, the Stones wanted to do. Um, and that record, we basically bought into the charts. Um, you know, I mean, for every one the public actually bought, we, we, bought, we bought another one. So instead of it being a 48, it got to like number 36 in the charts. Um, and uh, life began. Amazing. So just to get the time right, because this is amazing to me. In January of 63, you're in France. And I had to work a little, man. You know, it wasn't all um, straight. I, in, I came back to England in September of 62, okay. uh, because okay. the season was over, I'd run out of money and I got a vicar of a British English church to lend me some money. Um, and I went to the British embassy and I handed back my passport and then they paid for you, they repatriated you. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I went back to work, man, you know? And then, okay. so it was from like August of 62 and then January of 63, was Bob Dylan and the Beast and other things. Bob Dylan, okay, okay. But, but I guess the point I'm trying to get to is an incredible amount of things were happening in your life where you were making things happen at a really high level, at a really young age, in a very short period of time. I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to disagree with that for the sake of people who are listening to you because you're just getting on with it, man, you know, and you're just, you're, you're not sitting there, oh, wow, you know, um, yeah. I worked with little Richard, or I, you're getting away with it because after the Second World War and then the wishes of your parents and things like that, you haven't had to get a regular job. You're doing something that is adventurous and fun. Life does not end up on the cutting room floor. You, mm -hmm. but you're not, you know, I mean, I never at that time, you know, I mean, the Beatles, as people, didn't impress me. Sorry, but on Paul George, but you know what I mean? Like, um, they were just other young people. Um, I mean, Little Richard, when I did, I did a tour that was <clears throat> in 62, uh, 
Little Richard and Sam Cooke. And what was incredible about that experience is, was you realized that these two American Negroes didn't get to play in front of white people that much in America. But you weren't sitting there going, oh, I'm in the start of something new. There's a cultural shift and all this. They got the birth control pill and, you know, right. we had to get married and settle down straight away and think, and all, which, is, which is a wonderful coincidence. If you look at the now youth with shops like John Stevens and I, you know, not, not working girls couldn't actually usually afford Mary Kwan, but um, unless they were high class working girls, but, Right. <laughs> um, you know, you you then disposable income was a result of this wonderful accident called birth control. Um, and then they would spend it on records and spend it on clothes and the 60s um, were beginning. But you kind of you didn't take credit for it, but you kind of went, well, this is pretty good. It's better than what I was promised. Amazing. So you mentioned um, that first time the Stones went into the studio. I'd love to ask you, because there were not a lot of people who can talk about him. Uh, I'd love to ask you in thoughts and reflections on Brian Jones. Yeah, well, almost a founder member of the 27 Club. You know, and of all those great artists who died, you know, on the cusp of the of when they were like 27, um, what's it called, Saturn Return, when, you know, you've so exhausted yourself with what you've done, because you've got no more energy to go for the next one, which takes you to the second cycle, which is roughly when you're about 56, and the premier members of that second club are probably Steve Jobs, um, <laughs> George Harrison, right? But Brian Jones, um, he and I never got on, unless we were high, um, which later we were. Uh, the Rolling Stones was his band. And this was the cause of so many problems, so many of the problems that he had. I mean, he was like <clears throat> a cat who had nine lives and by mistake got sent back for a 10th life. And then when he was about 27, they went, wait a minute, made a mistake, we got to take him back, you know? and. He and I, one of the reasons, we, all right, one of the reasons we didn't get on is because he was the leader of the band until they had a manager, which was me and Eric Easton. And he didn't take giving up the, for want of a better word, the power he thought he had over the Rolling Stones. He didn't, wasn't happy giving that up. He enjoyed having the rest of the band report to him. You know, oh, Brian's letting us know when the next gig is, Brian's letting us know, you know, and those kind of things. And he was an incredible musician. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And, his, and then when Mick and Keith became writers, which they basically became writers by when one time that either my mother kicked me out or I left or whatever, um, I went and lived with Mick and Keith. So, I did that at a crucial time. I mean, it was a crucial time from the point of view that it became apparent that they would have to start, somebody would have to start providing uh, original material for them because the um, casket of rhythm and blues songs that everybody was feeding off, like, you know, Barrett, uh, the Barrett Strong, Barry Gordy song, Money, Sweets for My Sweet, the writers from writers like Pomus and Schumann and all those things, it, the well would run dry. 
So if you didn't write um, your own material, you were like an airplane with just one tank of petrol, man, you're going to crash, right? And um, because I was living um, with Mick and Keith, I picked them and they started writing um, and <laughs> became very good at it. Um, and Brian was kind of left out of that equation. Mind you, he did look down on pop music. At the same time, while he wanted all the benefits and excesses from it, he looked down on it. And I, I, I kind of, um, how can I put this? Like, I've, I don't, I've always believed that you can't look down on your audience because eventually they'll smell a rat. And Brian looked down on his audience. And, and, but this was a, you know, God, I'm almost, I could kind of shrink on all of this, couldn't I? Um, hmm. Or let's not call Russell Brand. Um, but oh, uh, it's like at the same time that he looked down on it, he wanted it so badly and he would need the adulation, the, the doing of a job, the creation of a part, of a musical part, was not good enough for him. He then needed to look around and see that everybody else had loved it. Whereas, as we know, um, a great musician, or no, but listen, no, even, even the silly ones are great musicians. The a musician who's going to go, who's the yard will go on forever, knows what he has done in that particular moment, and if everybody else likes it, great, and if they don't, that's their problem. Amazing. No, it's it's uh, absolutely priceless. Let me give you another name just to re reflect on who hung around in different ways for a long time, but I think you were there at the beginning with Anita Pallenberg. Well, um, I had a great deal of respect for Anita Pallenberg, um, but I stayed out of the way, you know, because I knew by instinct if I, what, what I didn't know in detail, that a new uh, chapter of music was coming, where by the influences, the muses, the women, I mean, it's not that far from Spinal Tap. <laughs> Come on, you know, I mean, all that other movie with Bill Nye, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I knew that um, uh, the beginning of my, the end of my life with the Rolling Stones was coming when I would call Brian Jones's uh, apartment and someone would answer the phone and ask who was calling. You know, <laughs> you, you know that your number's going to come up pretty soon when it reaches that stage. But Anita Pallenberg just... Uh, I mean, she was just on an incredible runway, like a fashion runway or a life runway all the time. She was just, apart from being powerfully beautiful, she had an inside beauty that um, obviously had its very dark sides, but it was just very attractive on all levels. And one knew that it was going to be women like her and women like Yoko Ono who were going to have major influences, be major influences on where our music was going. I, I love it. Thank, that was wonderful. So Andrew, you mentioned you took the boys into the studio, you record three songs, Come On, what were the other two? Stoned and I Wanna Be Loved. Stone was an instrumental because we knew we better own the instrumental. 
and I Want to Be Loved, which I, I, I think it was Willie Dixon. Um, and, but because that was on, done on four channels, I knew that I better take the band the next time we recorded to a place where didn't have to be mixed. The four tracks didn't have to be mixed. So we went to a seedy little mono studio that was mainly used for demonstration records um, on Denmark Street called Reached Sound with a great engineer called Bill Farley. And there we basically made the, um, I want to be a man, the, the one the Beatles wrote was done somewhere else, Kingsway. Um, but then we went into Regent Sound and therefore they're the next single, um, Not Fade Away. And most of the first album was recorded in this place, Regent Sound. to talk about it but when you were living with Mick and Keith and really encouraging them and I guess tell me was one of the first ones they wrote go back to that you know that process when you saw you know the the birth of a songwriting pair that you know is as accomplished as any we've ever seen on this planet Noel Elton would disagree with you wouldn't he (laughs) they're certainly in that top tier no I agree but I mean but when you're there at the time, I'm sure if you're when you're working with someone who's providing you with stuff that they can do and that you need, whether it's for your for your magazine or whatever it's for or what, whatever you're about, you go, oh, that's good. It's about time. I mean, they deliver. That's what they're supposed to do. You don't. Um, the, the words you use. Um, I mean, I'm not um, downgrading what the accomplishment was because no era for strange reasons that followed us whether it's the 70s well the clash is obviously an exception um but no and there's probably a few more but i mean like the sex pistols is basically what's lasted his image as opposed to the music um but now we're you know we're 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 in covid times where we, we could be entertained by anything we got to look for i mean i saw gary oldman if i can just diverse on a um a little clip talking about the things they were asking him about his favorite roles and he he was talking about when he did Sid and Nancy and he said at the time he said it was just a job he said uh, and you know that film Sid and Nancy basically changed made his career right um and he said I could I couldn't imagine why anybody would want to make a movie about these people the same with other things like Duran Duran I mean that you know they're more um tied up in the wrong way with MTV and all those lovely videos with the yachts and things like that. And there's been no, um, nothing has lasted like the 60s. You know, the 70s or the 80s. Um, yeah, I suppose if I would, you know, if somebody would turn around and say, no, you're wrong, mate. Like the Smiths changed my life or Joy Division changed my life. But in terms of um, 
money, <laughs> money. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of what still gets used in commercials, what still gets used, what what is you know what is the um, who are the Pharisees hanging around the temple? The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, that the Who, that's it. I mean, I remember. Let me just tell you this little story because you'll like it, given the game you're in, right? Around ninety something, um, Alan Klein, who basically ended up um, either owning or quasi owning most of the Stones' output from 1963 to 1971, um, he told me that he said, "Look," he said, "this advertising agency um, want to use satisfaction." Um, and he got a humongous amount of money out of them for the time for this use of satisfaction. It was like two and a half million dollars or something like that. Um, and I, I only have the buckle of the watch. I don't have the watch or the strap, right? But anyway, mm -hmm. I have a little interest. But, um, um, and he said to me, Andrew, I want you to go down to where they're cutting the music for the jingle using satisfaction. I said, yeah, what do you want me to do? He says, well, I want you to make sure that it doesn't sound like the Stones because we made them agree that they can have the song, which I thought was just hysterical to be paying. You don't need, they're not even getting the record, right? And, uh, but I've got to go down and make sure it either sounds like Devo or somebody, right? And later I, I got to meet the guy at the advertising company and he said um, to me, um, he says, you know how uh, we we got how we got the song and so on and so on. I said, no, go on, tell me. He said, well, the client, which was Cadbury's Chocolate, um, I think, uh, were changing advertising agencies, and the way we got them was we promised we spend more of their money than anybody else. That is a great story. You know, so, I'll get one more story. advertising story if I may. Because go you, ahead, I sure. We've got a captive sure. audience. No, I, no. Um, there's a company called Gray and Company, right? Yep. Yep. And a guy called Dick something or the other. I, I'm sorry, I can't Dick. I can't. He's still around. I can't remember his second name. But anyway, I'm with him on on the straight side of Fire Island, if there is one, um, in those immaculate years, the '80s or whatever, right? And he says to me, um, he says, you know, he said, uh, I used to work in London for Grace. He said, and he says, I haven't told this many people uh, this story. He said, but. One of the young copyright people or artists or whatever, graphic art, graphic designers, apprentices that we had was Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones. I said, oh yeah. He said, yeah, he said, he said, he said, I've never lived down the fact that Charlie came to me one day at the end of 62, something like that, right? And said, look, um, and we liked him and he liked us and everything. He said, I've been given this offer by this band um, that I should join them on a permanent basis. But it means that I won't, you know, be able to stay here at Gray and Company, whatever it was, the advertising agency. And I just wanted to discuss it with you and tell you what my plans were. He says, he says I told Charlie, don't be stupid. Like, you're earning seven pounds a week now. In a few years, you could be earning nine. <laughs> Amazing, absolutely, absolutely. So, Talk about that time and you made a film, which I saw when it came out and I just absolutely loved it, uh, that I think you were the mastermind of, which was a film called Charlie is My Darling. Yeah, yeah, um, which <clears throat> we made because I 
there was all this business, you know, after the Beatles, the Hard Day's Night, and everybody, including Herman's Hermits and Dave Clark Five, and even Jerry and the Pacemakers, were all making, everybody was making movies, man. This was now the new game in town, right? Um, and I had, on one occasion, I'd taken Mick to meet one of the people they were, see, the people they were promoting to us as writers or directors at that time were only 35, but they were ancient, you know, totally ancient. Um, the British, very famous British writers, Willis Hall and Willis, uh, Keith Waterhouse or something like that. Um, and Brian Forbes, you know, who was partners with Richard Attenborough for so much stuff. And then we also met Nicholas Ray, who had directed so many great movies, including um, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Um, and he was flown into London. He was doing some film in Spain. And all he wanted to do was talk about James Dean, which wasn't very good for Mick Jagger. <laughs> he didn't really want to listen to that. Um, and as we left this Muse House meeting, I mean, I remember forever Mick saying to me, don't ever put me through that again, right? That kind of thing. So we were actually not going anywhere, but then Alan Klein had come up with this deal that the Decker didn't have the right to our soundtracks and we can get another million and a half dollars. You know, all the things that we did for actual money, as opposed to entering something where money came as a result of a good idea. This soundtrack thing was, was bad because then you had to come up with something that you might not necessarily come up with, and we didn't. But during that period where it looked like we were going to have to take the idea of making a film seriously, I came up with the idea of doing Charlie because I wanted to see what they looked like on camera, man. I wanted to see which one of them, you know, I mean, voice is one of the most important things in um, cinema or, you know, or theater or, you know, I wanted to see who resonated and, you know, who turned into like John Gilbert, right? You know, they're, they're only good in silent movies, right? Um, and interestingly, Brian and Bill, um, can I say boring? Yes. Um, Charlie Watts was the most fascinating because he had this sort of Belmondo, Charles Bronson persona of 1966 with a little moustache and all of that. And he was his own man and he, his voice resonated on film. Okay, That's why, apart from the fact, uh, play on words with, you know, calling somebody my darling, like in an Irish thing, you know, um, it was called Charlie is my darling. And then the two who I decided for, you know, just my own elitist subjective reasons, it doesn't mean to say that I was right, but I decided, well, Mick and Keith didn't come off very well in that interview process because we had them all interviewed by the filmmaker, uh, Peter Whitehead, the guy who directed the thing. Um, and, you know, voice is everything, man, you know, I mean, um, and they're, speaking voices, Charlie's was the top voice. You know? So I said, oh, I've got my own little Charles Bronson here, man, if we ever have to do a movie. But <clears throat> um, so that movie was made as a test on them so that I had an idea of, the, of which one of them might survive on screen and which ones might not. And the film, which it was a two day or so, two gig trip? Three days, three, three, yeah, Belfast, uh, Belfast, Dublin and Cork. And the footage, um, and you're quite prominent throughout the film, Andrew, is amazing. This stuff that no one's ever seen before. No, well, I'm quite 
common in it because, or I mean, I, not hope I wasn't common, but you know, um, because I'm kind of like the cheerleader, I've got to get them uh, animated and active on what normally would be downtime to see whether the camera loved them. It was a different age. There wasn't really security on stage. The stages were very low to the yep. ground. Do you remember what it was like being there when they, they the boys literally couldn't get through a performance? Fun. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was a great reward. I mean, they only had to do 25 minutes anyway. Ironically, with these COVID times, I was discussing it with I think, Craig, something in a, um, something we'd read where, oh no, he told me that, because of the, uh, the, the financial setup of as people go back to performing in COVID, they probably may, in a lot of instances, will have to sing twice for their supper, you know, have to do two shows a night because of how many people can be taken in and still how much the acts are going to want to be paid and et cetera, et cetera. So I find it quite ironic that you, you might go back to where artists are going to have to perform twice in one evening because that's, you know, that was our university, man. You know, I mean, that was our... Those, those were our trenches. That's where um, boys became men um, back in the 60s, the Beatles in Hamburg, the Stones in the Blues Clubs, um, or and all your American artists who had to appear on those Alan Freed and, and Murray the K shows where they were doing five shows a day, admittedly only doing one, two or three songs a day. But uh, it was still the same kind of trenches that people like Mark Antony learned their craft in. You know, so you get good whether you're playing in front of three people or 30 or 300 and that you develop the, I mean, Keith Richard called the tour, the first actual tour that we did, the, the kind of tour you're referring to, which was with the Stones, very bottom of the bill um, with the Everly brothers and Bo Diddley. And then sometimes little Richard topping the bill. That was the university, man. That was the trenches. I mean, six weeks on the road from I don't know, September, October, is that six weeks? That's eight. Um, but doing two shows a night, almost every night. If there were three nights off, that was it, top weight. And that was just travel time from one place to another. And then um, you get good at it. And that wonder of music went out when a band could only play if they could guarantee to the club owner that 50 people would come in and things like that. And when, um, I mean, the last band I can think of like, who got in a truck and then went and made it in America, might have been Fish, I don't know, maybe, but it definitely was like the police, you know, where you could gig and gig and gig. Um, and then suddenly you were strong. Right. Right. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. They, and when I talked to Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds, he talked about how tough that was and that it really wore them out. <laughs> that's, that's why they're the Yardbirds. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the, I, that, I'm not knocking. That sounds like I was, but I'm saying, okay. Yeah, I am. No, I'm not knocking them. I'm just talking about them as an actuality. They never yeah. had a killer yeah, for a group to succeed there's got to be a killer in it you know or two right. and we know that um keith ralph was very fragile um the guitarists in the early age in the early days changed some of that incredible litany you know jeff beck and 
Jimmy Page and whoever the other one was. Um, Eric Clapton. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, but, you know, but it wasn't the kind of moving force that the Rolling Stones were. The Rolling Stones were, dare I say, they were good at everything, man. There was no, all these other acts, not their fault, but it might have been their capacity or their ability. They would make, um, like the likes of the Yardbirds and Man for a Man and things like that, would make commercial records, singles that were hits, you know, like, you know, whatever, Man for a Man, Pretty Ballerina and all those things, right? Um, but as a compromise, for your love for the Yardbirds was a compromise. It wasn't part of their regular um, body of work. The Stones never compromised. Um, the Stones, you couldn't, you know, it was all on the same line of delivery was the singles, the albums, whereas these other people had singles and then the music we really want to do, man, now we're going to play some blues for you, right? Which were at a complete uh, juxtaposition to the singles, the 45s that had made them known. And so there was something inaccurate or, um, I mean, okay, if the, if the Yarbos were playing in a blues club, man, and I saw them in Vancouver, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and they were just wonderful, you know, I mean, with Jim and uh, the other guy, and then people who'd been with the Yardbirds for 25 years, right? And they were new, right, they were right. the new people. Um, but, and they were great, you know, I mean, they were greater than I remember them then, right? Um, but in, in that club, like in Vancouver, that was their audience, but that audience didn't really want to hear For Your Love, which is ironically the Graham Goldman song that got them there in the first place. What I'm saying is the Stones were, the, the image, the um, behavior, the singles, the 45s and the albums and the stage were a tremendous force, all of equal footing. There were no passengers. There was, there was not one element of them that was a passenger. Andrew, you are widely viewed as being sort of a branding genius at a time when no one knew what branding was. Uh, and though you're not a household name in the advertising business, arguably, if there was going to be a, a Mount Rushmore type of Hall of Fame for people who have influenced our industry and that whole world of culture and branding, you should be on that Mount Rushmore. I, I, I'd love to hear you talk about the evolution of the Stones as a brand, which you were such a seminal part of. And as the story goes, that it built in part on your experience working with Brian Epstein and what the Beatles were and what you didn't want the Stones to be. Not at all. You know, it's inevitable with the concertina of time that people can now write articles in which they claim um, that, oh yeah, Andrew Oldham, um, he, 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 um, Created the Rolling Stones. Created the Rolling Stones. What a joke! Um, uh, they already were. You know, I just told. Tell us the real story. Well, no, it's I, you know I was great. Don't let's not, I agree with you on that. But it, it's a different. Um, it's a, it's a slightly different scenario. Look at it this way. Can you imagine um, 
if at the time my um, dictum or whatever it is to the Rolling Stones have been, okay, man, like um, you're going to make it because you're the opposite to the Beatles. Yeah. Well, how disrespectful is that? Right. To, Ridiculous. To the Rolling Stones. Now, that's not saying that I didn't know in the back of my mind that, you know, for every um, Marlon Brando, there's an Anthony Perkins, and Anthony Perkins is just as attractive to um, uh, a certain percentage of the population as Marlon Brando was. I mean, they just, you know, somebody you want to schlep in the alley and another one you want to bring home and spend your life with with a picket fence, except he's gay. Um, but... Um, like, well, a man could, Anthony Perkins, I suppose, yes. But what I'm saying is who, when you're very young, you let your girlfriends or your friends or your parents know you are heavily influenced by, you are telling those different groups who you are. You know, if you're telling your mother you like Tupac, uh, <laughs> she'd better watch out, right? Um, but if it's... Um, Justin Bieber, then we're all safe, right? Um, the same way with um, Elvis Presley, uh, well, then he became acceptable. Uh, or Little Richard, That's a it's, a it's a huge difference. So I was aware of that, but I never applied it because to start with, there was no need. And the branding that you're talking about actually basically kind of occurred long after I'd gone when bands became brands in the 1980s because they had survived the Yardbirds. Yeah, I mean, hey, I mean, you, took, you, you said Jim said he was tired. Therefore, the limit of fame and um, work and money that he got was appropriate. He might not have, they might not have been to the handle anymore you know i mean in the end you get what you deserve right um maybe but the rolling stones they didn't really become a brand until um as opposed to a band because quite frankly without um being rude they are the rat pack with guitars i mean they they, they've done everything except las vegas i i think the who did a, a sit down gig there a year or two ago yeah and i mean look at the amounts of days off that you have to have to keep the circus going now say on the last two tours you know and that's not a knock that's just a reality man i mean i know you know i go by the you know i'm 77 and i go um well you know the amount of money that i spent between 50 and 70 keeping myself going because once you get over 70 the body says yeah right okay this is the reality Andrew, I, I want to ask you about one other figure, um, and then we'll talk about some other, you know, incredible parts of your life. But I want to ask you about Alan Klein, who is uh, a notorious figure in history. You mentioned Sam Cooke. I'd love to get your reflections on Alan Klein, who I think you helped bring in to manage the Stones. Alan Klein was a necessary evil. I'll give you the, the okay, I mentioned that I had a partner called Eric Easton. By 1965, he was fed up with us. He was making good money. Um, he, he was old school, okay? He would go 
Andrew, you're spending too much. Andy, you're spending too much time with the act. It's not good for business. You know, I mean, things have changed. You spent the time with the act, right? Um, because you were the same age or younger. I was younger than all of them. But, um, and he wanted to get out. And he was basically prepared to do a deal with the Decca Records that was very favorable to him, but was unfavorable to us um, because Decca would be paying us what was supposed to be a, a good advance, but they were paying us with money that had accumulated in all the territories outside of England. They were gonna be paying us with their own money. They were just gonna be, instead of having to wait 18 months to spend us, to say, to spend, to uh, pay us from France and Spain, and this and America and all this crap, they, they, you know, they were gonna, here's it, here it is in one lump. Well, thank you very much, right? I met Alan Klein because he was already very successful um, with a record producer um, called Mickey Most, who did Donovan and uh, Herman's Hermits, the National Tunes and things like that. And, um, you know, and that, at that time, Americans could still get away with anything. <laughs> you know, they were still um, known, and this is an important psychological fact. I mean, Alan Klein later said to me, hey, Oldham, do you know how I was, this was, this was his actual words, man, you know? He said, hey, Oldham, do you know why I was able to take advantage of you? I said, no, go on, Alan, tell me for the hundredth time. Uh, he said, because I was 13 years older. Okay, man, when I was, say, 30, 40, or 50, that didn't make the sense, didn't have the resonance of the reality that it does to me at this age, when I know what I'm like talking to a 50-year-old, right? Or the wisdom or the lessons I can still get from an 85-year-old, right? Um, and Alan, um, I say, it's not a joke when I say the fact that he was American, okay, was a very important part of it, man, because what had influenced all of our movement, the, 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 I'm talking about our, the Beatles, the Yardbirds, the Who, Stone, well, the Who less, was America, man, right? The fact that you Americans in our early lives, so, you know, we've been told you won the Second World War for us, right? <laughs> Yes, dear. We only saw you as we grew up on the screen with good lighting, great plots. You always won. You got the girl at the end and all these kind of things. And that right up to the Dirty Dozen, man, you know, and films like that in the 60s. That was the America that we were weaned on and addicted to. So when an American walks into your life and says, I can sort this out, I just wheeled Mick and Keith down. I said, if you agree, you decide if you like him or not. Um, and we'll go with him. And we went with him. Um, it became um, difficult um, in that Alan, through the 13 years advantage he had over all of the paperwork, ended up not representing us, but owning, or I'll say quasi-owning, because time changes so many things, um, the work of the Rolling Stones from 1963 to 71. But, you know, I said, you get what you deserve and we deserve Alan Klein. Amazing. And, but you also said something earlier about it was a different time and business was done a different way then. Certainly not a way that would be acceptable today, but, you know, the lessons you learn from, you know, people like Phil Spector. I mentioned earlier that we had Marshall Chess and he was talking about, you know, his father, uh, Leonard and Uncle Phil and 
payola. And, and he said, listen, none of this stuff would have worked without payola. It was just how it was just how business was done. Yeah, well, you could also have a conflict of interest. I mean, in the in that, well, I'm not sure. Maybe Scooter Brown has them. I'm not sure. You know, um, but you know, a conflict of interest. I mean, if you if if you were a winning combination with the act, just as well that you had no outsiders in. I mean, I was um, uh, their manager. I produced them. I was a co-publisher with them, um, and we didn't. The Stones and I didn't have to listen to anyone else. You know, so look. The business, of course it changes because there came a point in time where to start with, acts had to speak for themselves. In the early days of the Beatles and the Stones and the Who, all they had to do was play good and make great records, man. They didn't have to, to um, uh, do interviews, but I mean, they were pretty poxy. You didn't, you didn't have to be in the world of, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, we're now 90, there's less of it on stage more of it is presenting yourself in all these media forums and you better be good at it, you know, and you better be good at um, explaining your life and explaining your products in front of these people, because um, if you're not, they're not going to buy the product. Um, I mean, I went in Bogota here in Colombia, probably four years ago or so. I went to uh, see one of the last Justin Bieber shows before he packed it up and, you know, opened his church and uh i'm glad i went to see him then um because he had a gift you know i mean you can't have how many hits he's had by accident you don't you don't get taken under the wings of usher if you're a you know if you're only good for one or two hits anybody can have one hit right but when justin bieber spoke to the audience without music just speaking to them it was one-on-one. -on -one. Every one of the audience thought he was talking to them, including myself, Matt. <laughs> uh, and that happens when Mick Jagger calms down an audience or Bruce Springsteen calms down an audience or Frank Sinatra speaks to the audience. It's a one-on-one -on -one experience. And that is a gift that you cannot rehearse. I don't know how I got into that, but there you are. Let us bid adieu and stay healthy and well. And thank you for doing this. And Craig, thank you.